listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Next week at this time, we'll find us marking the first Sunday in Advent, launching into a new year in the Christian calendar, which makes tonight the final Sunday of an old year. It's a Sunday currently observed as the reign of Christ or Christ the King. Whereas in the older calendar of the Book of Common Prayer, it was simply called the Sunday next before Advent. Now, here's a bit of serious Anglican trivia for you. It was also nicknamed Stirrup Sunday because the collect or the prayer for the week was, Stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people, that they plenteously bringing forth the fruit of good works may of thee be plenteously rewarded through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. But you know what the other tradition was on Stir Up Sunday? Families would go home and in the afternoon would stir up the ingredients for their plum pudding and Christmas cake. That, I mean, that's rooted deep in the English tradition still, and in fact, my sister and her family, very good prayer book Anglicans, still faithfully follow that tradition. So, the Christmas pudding would have been stirred up this afternoon. Well, I have to confess that I experience a level of real disconnect when presented with the readings for Christ the King in any of the three years of the lectionary cycle. The first reading always picks up on a theme of kingship. Tonight it was the kingship of David, David's last words. The gospel readings in all three years have kingship in view as well. And in two of those three years, it's a reading from the story of the Passion, as was the case tonight. Yet neither of these readings particularly connects to what we've been hearing over the past weeks and months. We just suddenly have kingship readings because they deal with the reign of Christ. And it's not even a particularly ancient or traditional feast day either. The feast of Christ the King was only introduced in Roman Catholic practice in 1925. And it wasn't actually until 1970 that the Roman Catholic Church moved it to its present location on the last day of the year. Beginning in the 1980s, in a spirit of ecumenism and of a shared common lectionary, observing the day became the norm for Anglicans and Lutherans and other church traditions. You can understand that spirit, that ecumenical spirit. You can also understand the instinct that says the old year should kind of go out with a bang. It should go out in celebration. Christ reigns. That's more powerful than the admittedly pedestrian, the Sunday next before Advent. It is, however, a pattern that has raised a bit of a red flag for some, including N.T. Wright. 
Bishop Wright suggests we already have a day celebrating Christ as King. It's called Ascension Day. More to the point, though, he says to mark Christ the King at the end of the church year as its culmination might suggest that Christ's reign is an end point, the end point to which we are moving. Yet, says Bishop Wright, going into the world to declare that Jesus is Lord only makes sense if he already is reigning. The mission of the church presupposes this. Well, for all of Bishop Wright's scruples, and for all that these two readings come at us a bit sideways, this year of all years, I'm finding more, myself more open to dealing with these texts and this theme. I think that has much to do with that long sermon series I preached over the summer, which dealt with the matters of kingship and nation-building in ancient Israel a series that I launched by recounting a conversation that I'd had with Lisa Ray Beale, a professor of Old Testament at Providence Seminary. Lisa had fairly recently published a commentary on First and Second Kings. And I said, at some point I'd love to have her come and do a kind of a session with St. Ben's on her commentary, on her work. Maybe she could make a case for why people in the church should care about these historical books and all of the stories of king and nation. Lisa kind of smiled and she said, because they're in the Bible? And then she added, and because we're still longing for a true king. Well, it was that line about longing that informed my whole sermon series, which time and again had us look at the closest thing Israel ever had to a true and great king, David. David, who had such promise and whose adventures are told with such delight by those biblical authors. And David, the one whose misadventures, whose failings, are told with such raw honesty by those same writers. This evening's reading from 2 Samuel is framed as the last words of David. The oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man whom God exalted, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the favorite of the strong one of Israel. Now that's quite an introductory uh, line of, for author. They're bold, confident words all the way through that this king speaks as he nears the end of his life. The Spirit of the Lord speaks through me, David says. God's word, God's word is upon my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, one who rules over people justly, Ruling in the fear of God is like the light of the morning, like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. Is not my house like this with God, he says? 
For the Lord has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Well, David's claim here, in other words, is that it is in God and through God that he's set his house and his nation aright, that he's been able to do anything at all, and that God has recognized this through making an everlasting covenant with that household. And yet, the writers of First and Second Samuel and then First and Second Kings, which is basically a continuous narrative, they know that David has faltered. They know in retrospect, because they write later, that his house and his nation will fall and fall badly. Even as these biblical authors present David's last words, they know in their hearts that his is not, in fact, the last word. They know all that made him great, a man after God's own heart, as one of the texts says. Yet they also know about all the ways in which David fell. So they too, they too long for a true king. Particularly as told by John, Jesus' trial before Pilate is a study in contrasting understandings of kingdom and power and authority. Are you the king of the Jews, Pilate asks him. That's because one of the key accusations brought against Jesus by the temple authorities is that he has claimed for himself royal authority. And in doing that, he has committed treason against the Roman overlords. Do you ask this on your own, Jesus replies, or did others tell you about me? You can almost hear something close to the scorn in Pilate's voice as he replies, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Here we hit that critical moment of contrast in this story. As Jesus answers, my kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is not from here. So you are a king, Pilate replies, to which Jesus then answers, you say that I am a king. For this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asked him, what is truth? What is truth? The question is asked, but then the travesty of a trial continues to just roll forward. And Jesus is never actually given the opportunity to answer Pilate's question. My kingdom, my kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is not from here, Jesus had said might be tempting to imagine that he meant that his kingdom was somewhere up there, somewhere beyond, somewhere called heaven, not here. Yet this is the same Jesus who said, the kingdom of God is among you, and who taught us to pray, 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, as N.T. Wright insists, Christ is already reigning. The mission of the church, the whole life of the church, presupposes this. He is reigning. And his reign is not one marked by the usual trappings of power and of kingship, but by truth-telling. That's what he meets Pilate with, truth-telling. Deep servanthood, which he's modeled all the way through his ministry and then in a particularly poignant way in the gospel according to John on the night of his arrest by getting down on his knees and washing the feet of his disciples. Self-giving. All of these speak of a deep authority. He brings a deep authority in all that he is and all that he does, which is quite unlike the kind of power that people like Pilate held. To long for a true king is to recognize that all of the usual ideas of kingship which are so often tied to Pilate's kind of power and privilege, all of those ideas of kingship have been subverted in and through what God has done in Jesus. To again cite N.T. Wright, Kyrios Jesus, Christ is Lord, was the earliest confession of Christian faith the thing you had to say before you got baptized, Kyrios Jesus, confessing that Jesus was Lord, meaning among other things that Caesar wasn't, was basic, bottom line Christianity, right from the start. It still is basic, bottom line Christianity. We need not shy away from using this language of kingship, and of lordship when we speak of Jesus because he's flipped those titles on their heads. He's stripped them of all vestiges of power and privilege and given them back to us anew. Truth-telling, self-giving, servanthood, that's what reigns. My kingdom is not from this world. Jesus had said to this Roman official who held in his hands the power to order his execution, which he did. Not from this world, yet anything but irrelevant to this world. That kingdom is among us and within us and constantly threatening to break in or well up all around us every time any one of us tells the truth, praise thy kingdom come, or enacts the self-giving servanthood into which he steadily calls us still. This is what the king we yet long for would have us do. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.